What does healing mean to you? How do we take people that have committed a crime and come up with an individualized plan to make them productive citizens in our community? Voices, the mental health podcast, raising unanswered questions, sharing unanswered prayers. We are faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. I am Tony Roberts. I am Eric Riddle. And we are Revealing Voices. Tony, it's episode 28. Where did the time fly? It, it's a fine, fine day to be alive. It is. Eric, I want to mention a little bit about an article I was pleased to write. And Yeah, I, I woke up on Saturday morning and opened my newspaper, Faith and Community page. Tony Roberts, right there. Guest columnist. And it's uh, about the myths of mental illness and violence. Right. Um, as you know, it will still be an issue when this comes out, but basically yeah. uh, there is discussion that somehow mental illness leads to much, if not most, of the fa- uh, violent episodes. Sure. Uh, That's a, a myth. A great myth. That's very untrue. Very untrue. Studies, uh, repeated studies, and certainly the most reliable ones have shown uh, well, from the risk factors for violence and serious mental illness from the Treatment Advocacy Center, um, there are five remarks here. Most individuals with serious mental illness are not dangerous. Most acts of violence are committed by individuals who are not mentally ill. Yep. Individuals with serious mental illness are victimized by violent acts more often than they commit See, violent th- acts. that's the one that I think people really need to hear again. Yeah. Well, you know, and breaking it down a little bit, if you think about it, a lot of homeless persons mm-hmm. have mental illness, and they're often the victims that's right. of violent episodes. Uh, Absolutely. That are frequently gang-related or alcohol addiction. Taken advantage of. Another is being a young male or a substance abuser, alcohol or drugs, is a greater risk factor for violent behavior than being mentally ill. And then finally, no evidence suggests that people with serious mental illness receiving effective treatment are more dangerous than individuals in the general population. Right. So there is a caveat there, and that is, is the mental illness being appropriately treated? Mm -hmm. Um, It does go on to conclude this a small number of individuals with serious mental illnesses do commit acts of violence. Individuals who are not being treated commit almost all of these, many of them also abusing alcohol or drugs. So if you take away all those risk factors and you just have someone like me mm-hmm. who is has a serious mental illness, but I'm treated, I don't abuse alcohol or drugs, the likelihood of me committing a violent act is actually much less than the general population. Right. And I'm not alone. Many of my brothers and sisters with serious mental illness fall into m- many more than than not mm-hmm. fall into this camp. Yeah, this is this is an example of stigma. Mm-hmm. That that myth is perpetuated because of stigma. And one of the points I bring out it it's not original to me, but basically by having this myth, we are discouraging people from getting treatment. Absolutely. And by discouraging people from getting treatment, we are introducing a greater risk Absolutely. for them to be, That's right. um, to be violent. So it produces, these myths produce the act, absolute opposite effect of what they intend to purport. Mm-hmm. I feel very passionately about it, and I think a lot of people do. I've gotten uh, several comments from people at my church and others at the community, and um, so 
hopefully we will grow beyond this current um, fixation on the way that mental illness relates to or doesn't relate to violence. Um, but we have a long way to go. It's just a scapegoat. Yeah, it is. So, Eric, tell me about what your world is holding these days. What piques your interest? I am a uncle to my uh, fifth niece. Mm -hmm. No nephews yet. Uh, Poppy Coral uh, Riddle was born um, a week ago, mm -hmm. uh, last Wednesday. I think I'm going to call her Pop Star. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> it just rolled off the tongue the other day. I'm like, Pop Star. That's a good name for Poppy. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's better than Popsicle. Yeah. Although at a young age, she might like Popsicle. I think Poppy as a name could go a lot of different ways with There's a nickname. many possibilities in nicknames. Yeah. Named after... Popover. Named after Kurt's wife's uh, mother's uh, maiden name. Okay. Poppy. Yeah. It's a great name. A lot of, a lot of uh, beauty and simplicity and wonderful name. Uh, anyway, I was part of a heist last week. Is that Tony. right? I was. Uh, we have a thing called Exhibit Columbus. Mm -hmm. Anyone who lives near Columbus, Indiana, you need to come to town. This is legit. And even if you don't come, there are visitors that come from far away as China. And Absolutely. This is a, a big time of year. Every other year from August to like right after Thanksgiving, uh, downtown has a lot of different uh, exhibits um, around our architecture. right? And so one of those this year is a native plant planting in the library plaza i helped volunteer a little bit with that uh spreading mulch this it's a huge bed they've made but anyway uh they brought in about three thousand native plants and had a lot of uh, students from the local elementary school put the plants in this mulch bed now if they're native plants why did they have to bring them in weren't they already there well <laughs> Well, you know, they were raised in a nursery, native ah, to Indiana. Local nursery. Yeah. Okay. And, and the thing is, they overestimated, and I, I think the kids probably didn't put I them see. that tightly together either. So okay. I go down there on Thursdays. I, I knew they were wrapping up because this whole thing kicked off last Friday. But anyway, there's just plants everywhere. Mm. And, and so Richard McCoy, the director of this exhibit, says, Eric, the, these flowers, you can take them. Mm. Um, you can, you know, as long as they're gone by tomorrow at noon. Mm. And this was at about 9 p.m. at night. I was on my bike. Mm. So I wound up biking home. <laughs> I, I called a couple friends, uh, put on a headlamp, <laughs> went back down to the library. <laughs> and I'm like going around in the darkness, finding plants, organizing plants, putting them into my car. And it, it felt like like a high school prank. It was mm -hmm. it was just the somebody most exhilarating just, experience. I just was somebody filming this for the YouTube channel. The, uh, there is a picture out there. Oh, okay. I picture. should lift that picture. You, you uh, my friend put Julie that on took our, on our website. Yeah, I called up the Sierra local Sierra Club president, Julie Lowe. She that came down. The page. Oh, the yes. Yes. Yeah, I need to make sure that's up there. And do a little caption. Man, it's beautiful. There you go. Big pollinator stories. And then you heard a This American Life episode you wanted to Okay, share. so yeah, I think it was this this week. It's called uh, Ten Sessions. This is episode 682 of This American Life, titled Ten Sessions, uh, featuring Jamie Lowe, who actually um, went through a ten-session uh, uh, cognitive behavioral how do you say that? Yeah, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Yep, yep. cognitive behavioral mm -hmm. therapy, and um, recorded it. And so her therapist is part of it and just goes through each, each session, and the subject matter is around trauma that she experienced when she was 11 and molested near her bus stop mm. by a, mm. an older male, maybe late teens, early 20s. It's a really, 
really good episode. The the learnings that she's getting throughout this, the way she's kind of able to shift, the way she framed that whole experience and, and the blame, you mm-hmm. know, the way she had blamed herself. A lot of f- reflection, I think, on your personal history tends to mm-hmm. get kind of locked in a certain way you you remember it, mm-hmm. right? And, and you kind of lose the ability to see it f- from some different angles. Mm-hmm. And I think CBT really helps you to step back and walk through different ways of perceiving or... Um, well, I, you say? I, you, you've been through CBT, I, right? That's all I use. Yeah, yeah basically talk about CBT it. is the treatment du jour for bipolar disorder and, and is used in, in other, you know, like PTSD. Um, yeah, it, it's basically, you know, creating a narrative for the events of your life. Uh, unlike psychoanalysis that goes back in your childhood mm. and weaves, you know, a story that, yeah. uh, you know, connects the dots for issues that come up later. CBT that I've experienced focuses on the present. Yeah. You basically take how you've done the last week or two weeks, kind of like we do in, in our Facebook or in our Faithful Friends group. Yeah. And sometimes that leads backwards or forwards, depending on how the narrative is presented. Mm-hmm. Um, today in my own session, yeah. uh, I went from you know, describing my week back to a very traumatic event. Mm. So it can go in many d- different directions. But the, the, the title, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, relates to how our thoughts impact our behavior. Yes. And as we, repro- I think you said this word, reprogram our thoughts, mm. our behavior changes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so... For our listeners who um, hear about CBT but don't quite know what it is, uh, this would be, I think, a great way of being introduced to it. Uh, I, I think this is a This American Life. They're an amazing, amazing podcast. Great podcast. Very influential. Yeah. And it, they handle the subject matter very well on a very sensitive, intimate subject mm-hmm. matter. So anyway, I wanted to share that. Yeah. So our guest today is the Chief of Police of Columbus, Indiana, John Rohde. Yes, we were so happy when when we uh, decided to invite uh, uh, Chief Rohde. Uh, Eric and I were also kicking around the idea of this issue of mental health and violence and mental health, mental illness and law enforcement. So he came to this NAMI FaithNet program that we led a discussion for and has shown a real interest in mental illness in our community and how law enforcement can provide um, both care and safety, public safety. Mm -hmm. Police officers can get a bad rap, and I've always had respect for officers, and it was an honor to have Chief Rohde here with us in the studio, Mm -hmm. and I'm very confident that, you know, in his hands are our city is in a much safer place. Yeah, I think so. And he's a man of faith. You know, we related on that level. And while he does, as he points out, he ups, up, upholds the law for everyone. But his distinctive point is a point of faith. And yeah. uh, that frames how he sees justice. Tony, for the, the first time in season two, we have a in-studio guest. That's right, Studio E. John Rohde is the chief of police of the Columbus Police Department. Here in Indiana. How long have you been in that role? I've been uh, chief of police for almost six years now. Okay, six years. A, a proud Indiana University grad. Absolutely. Oh yeah. My. Go Hoosiers. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So... John, we were thinking about who would be a, a good person to interview in the light of what's happened in El Paso and Dayton in the past month around violence. And you came to mind. Uh, one of the reasons is because Tony and I at St. Peter's had a uh, NAMI FaithNet meeting, and, and you attended. Um, so you obviously have some uh, experience 
uh, with mental health, and, and I'm sure you've got a lot of stories you could share with us. And uh, you're also a man of faith. That's correct. So we'll, we'll be touching on, uh, on on your role as chief of police, as well as uh, how you take your, your Christian walk into your work. So great to have you. There are a lot of issues or a lot of areas that mental health, mental illness touch on law enforcement. You know, you encounter people who are homeless and you have some uh, encounter. Uh, some of those are mental Ill, mentally ill. In fact, the statistics say quite a few. Um, and then there is uh, people who are in the incarceration that you encounter. Um, and then, as Eric said, there, there are episodes of uh, either violence or encounters where uh, there's crimes being committed. We want to spend some time talking with you about uh, how you and your department can help someone who is exhibiting mental health symptoms or their loved ones. Absolutely, and thank you for having me. Um, and just to give the, the listeners some idea of the size of our agency, we have 87 sworn officers, so we're considered a mid-size agency. We uh, encounter uh, mental illness in, in a variety of ways, and it's, uh, it's very easy to um, group people into two categories, those that commit crimes and, and those that don't um, when we look at things. Um, but instead of being so black and white, and we realize that there's some gray in there as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, oftentimes, uh, maybe uh, a crime has been committed, but there's a, a reason um, um, why that person might not be a criminal, per se. Um, and so those are things that we want to take into account. Yeah, so we, when we uh, um, encounter somebody, um, and, and again, it's not always in a bad way. Um, oftentimes, it's in a, in a, a good way or a, um, where we're um, providing assistance of some sort. Uh, but we're not just always out there arresting people. We're out, out helping. Um, you're helping serving them. and you're protecting. That's correct. That's correct. And uh, and so, you know, the way the the law is, some of our frustrations um, center around what we can and cannot help people. One of the biggest issues we have is when somebody is unwilling to accept help. Mm -hmm. And um, so, the, by law, we're allowed to uh, force somebody into. Um, uh, to, to get help if they are a danger to themselves, others, um, or considered gravely disabled. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we're um, dealing with somebody that we know needs some sort of help, uh, but doesn't fall in those one of those categories, and is not wanting help, um, it makes it very difficult. And it's frustrating to us. We know oftentimes it's frustrating to family members. Mm -hmm. um, that, that have oftentimes been dealing um, with these individuals' mental health yeah. for a long period of time. So, John, with you said gravely disabled. So, with with mental health symptoms, I think some of those could be categorized as being gravely disabled in the moment that you're interacting with them. That's correct, and it, again, that's a gray area. Mm -hmm. um, and so, oftentimes, we want to make sure that we're not um, doing something um, that's breaking the law, right? And so, uh, but there are times that um, we are we interact with somebody, and, and we say yes, we can categorize them as grave, gravely disabled. Mm -hmm. And other times we're saying no, we we don't have enough to do that. And it's those times that we don't, you know, we feel like we don't have enough to make that categorization yeah. um, that it becomes frustrating because the the resources are not there for for us as law enforcement. The resources are not there uh, for families. Um, and it turns into re repeated episodes with the families, um, oftentimes repeated encounters with law enforcement mm -hmm. um, and with different er um, you know, entities within the system, including hospitals, et cetera. The last thing we want as law enforcement is to see somebody slip through the cracks of rece receiving the type of help they need. We'll take the extra time to try to find people the, the resources that they specifically need because we know each person is an individual um, and uh, each person needs individualized treatment and we're willing to take the time to, to work with uh, individuals and families to get them to where they need to go um, but the roadblock oftentimes is uh, the person's unwillingness sure you know the uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I hear from a lot of loved ones who have persons who are mentally ill in their families or friendships and they don't 
want to receive help. Um, from the family's perspective, they are gravely disabled and maybe even very close to a episode where they would be at risk to others. But your hands are really tied, right? Because unless they've right at the verge of that, I mean, how do you determine if a person with a mental illness is gravely disabled? How do you make that call? Yeah, and, and so we spend a lot of time uh, with our officers locally um, because um, oftentimes I've seen in law enforcement throughout the state where gravely disabled, um, the interpretation is they're harming themselves or others. And that's not mm -hmm. the case. It's actually a third possibility um, that, that is separate from those two. And mm -hmm. so we spend a significant time um, training our officers on the different factors that could weigh into making somebody meet that categorization of gravely disabled. Along the way we interview, we're going to ask questions from our listeners and people who have uh, been on our mental health advocacy. This, this is one from Carolyn Seymour. What can family members do to help ensure the safety of their mentally ill relative when the police have to be called? Well, that's a very good question. So a lot of that has to do with our, our you know, the training of the officers, but um, wherever you're located, you can't necessarily guarantee that all, all officers have been tra trained the same especially if you're in different states. Um, uh, as much as we try to um, make it standard, it, not necessarily um, that way. Uh, so I can tell you here in Columbus, we have um, a system in place where uh, people can voluntarily enter alerts uh, for addresses and people. And so if somebody wants to, they can say, my family member has this mental illness this is what it is, this is how they react to certain things. Mm. And then as officers are um, on their way to the, that address or actually dealing, that, dealing with that person, that information comes up on their computer. It's and a good they, case note. Right, and, and they know in advance um, of uh, you know, what they're getting into. And it's similar to, uh, and, and officers will actually enter those themselves. So, um, and and you know, we're talking about mental health, but there's all types of alerts if we know um, somebody um, carries a gun, there'll be an alert for that person in our system that mm. we know that they're, they're known to carry weapons. And so um, it's not only um, alerts that we have uh, for the safety of our officers and how they handle situations, but also awareness um, to what they're dealing with and if there's any special circumstances. Um, so uh, to answer the caller's question directly, I think if uh, uh, contact that agency and see if um, there's a, a alert that they can do for the address or for the individual, um, uh, letting their officers know what they're about ready to encounter and any special considerations they need when they're approaching that. That's good to know. I, I think Carol will be glad to know there is a positive step you can take before you're in a time of crisis. Absolutely. I know with at least the sheriff's department, I think with the police department, there are local pastors who ride along with the officers. Yes. Do you know much about the program and how they have supported people that you encounter? Oh yeah, we, we've got a, a chaplaincy program and we have uh, six chaplains and um, they uh, ride along with the officers. Um, uh, they're there as support not only for the officers' mental health and well-being and situations that come up, but also for um, those that come up in the community. Um, typically, they're called out on um, uh, serious situations, a lot of times uh, for death notifications and things like that to be there for the family. Um, but, but yeah, we've got a chaplaincy program, and, and uh, there's a variety of ways that we can use the chaplains. You've touched on something I want to explore a little bit with sensitivity, uh, realizing that there are uh, confidentiality issues. But worldwide, n certainly in our nation, there is an increasing concern about law enforcement officials' mental health and even suicides and the rising rate of that matching the rising rate in the general population, but maybe even exceeding it. So what do you see statewide and then impacting the training 
you do here in Columbus to address that issue? I think your ultimate question is, you know, what kind of training do we have and how do we utilize it throughout the community? Is that what, what you're How do you care for the mental health yeah. of your officers? You mentioned, in your yeah. Department? Okay, all right. Um, that's a different direction than I thought we were going. So, yeah, absolutely, I can, I can handle that. Every um, two years, um, one of the things that, that we've done since I've become chief is we do uh, mental wellness for the officers. And we bring in um, uh, uh, speakers um, who are not only prior law enforcement but um, um, have uh, some experience in this. So, for example, last one we had was a psychiatrist who was a retired um, law enforcement officer. So he, he, he knew and understood um, the psychological effects of being a police officer. Um, and matter of fact, he wrote a book on it. And so every new officers we have, we oh. give them a copy of this book. Who is that? Um, I'll, get, I'll get that to you because um, I'm spacing that. And not only do we invite the officers, uh, but uh, either, uh, police officers have a high rate of divorce. And, mm. um, and so we invite the spouse or significant other um, to attend that training as well. Um, on top of that, we uh, uh, have a, a group, um, not necessarily part of the police department, but a partner of ours, and it's called uh, Women Behind the Badge. Mm. And, uh, and actually they have a 5K coming up here um, but they, uh, um, that's a network of uh, spouses and significant others of uh, law enforcement that, that get together because they experience the same things um, from their spouses coming sure. home. Um, that, that's from a local that women behind the badge. Is that, local or it, that's a national? It is a local organization that some of our wives uh, uh, started, um, and so that's great. Um, it's a support group that um, that we have. Uh, for significant others, but also officers if they if they want to be involved. And we also have a built-in early warning system, a computerized system that tracks officers' activities and what types of activities they're doing. Um, and if there's a certain criteria that's met within a certain period of time, it, uh, it gives us an early warning to say, hey, you've looked at each one of these incidents and they might not have um, been significant in and of themselves, but as a whole, there might be something going on with this officer that you need to dig a little deeper on. Um, so we've implemented that um, and so that we can ensure that we don't have a crisis happen. And, and you know, you're never guaranteed um, not to, but we, we take those efforts to make sure that our officers are, are mentally um, in a good place because um, if you don't have that, they can't help the community get there. I want to touch on something we talked about before our interview, and that is uh, the realm of the area of dual diagnosis and uh, uh, how that impacts law enforcement, people addicted, as well as at least perhaps masking mental illness issues. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, th I think uh, I don't necessarily know how much it impacts uh, a person's interaction with an officer, but I do think that it, it impacts what type of treatment they receive. Um, and so, again, we spend a lot of time talking about addictions um, and we spend a little bit of time talking about mental health, and we spend um, very little, to in, if any, time talking about dual diagnosis, where um, addictions um, are a result of self-medicating for mental health um, right. reasons. And if we go back to the beginning where we talked about people in two different categories, those that commit crimes and, and those that don't, um, oftentimes the ones that commit crime we're looking at have addiction issues, right? Mm -hmm. They're stealing, um, they're um, committing drug violations, uh, things along those lines. Yes. How did that addiction start? Is there a, a mental health um, to the root cause of that? And we're doing things locally. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll be the first to say that people work hard for the things that they have, and nobody deserves to have their stuff stolen from them um, without any consequences. One thing that I caution people against when we when we start talking about addictions is um, uh, as a as a health issue is 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 that I'm not refuting that, but if there are um, bad criminal actions, there's still accountability for that. Mm -hmm. um, now, um, what accountability um, there is uh, might have uh, depend upon, you know, the basis for that person committing a crime. And again, everybody's an individual, so um, if we can get people directed into um, uh, the right treatment programs, um, uh, we'll be better off because the ultimate goal is to have um, everybody be a protective citizen in our community. When we're talking about dual diagnosis, I think it's very important on the back end to, to know um, what that person is dealing with, what got them to where they're at now, and how we can best um, get them to be a productive citizen. Um, 
and and you know we've in our community we've done a lot of things we've got the alliance for substance abuse progress um, which we might dive in that a little bit later if we do we can talk a lot about that uh, we, we can talk about that now yes yeah, right? it's a major it's on your local, mind a, yeah. a major local effort and I'm, I'm sure many other communities around the country are are really working to do similar types of mm -hmm. coordinated activity around addiction. Where do you sit in, in the community as far as your, your ability to impact that community work? Before the Alliance for Substance Abuse Progress started, there was um, two coalitions. There was a substance abuse coalition and a mental health coalition. And when we were talking about di dual diagnosis, note that they met separately. Mm. They were two different groups, right? 2016, we, we, we got a new mayor. Right. And, um, uh, he asked me and many other community members um, what the biggest issue was. Top of the list was substance abuse. Again, not knowing if that's uh, derived from mental health, but knowing that there's a mental health component to substance abuse. I don't just look at it from um, crime, that, that driving crime, which it does. Um, uh, the addictions are, are driving crime. But if we can get um, those, those that are uh, addicted uh, to be productive citizens once again, um, then not only are we going to reduce crime, but we're going to um, decrease unemployment. We're going to decrease the number of people on free or reduced lunches um, right. in our system. We're going to reduce homelessness. And so you have all these positive collateral effects by addressing one issue. The problem is, is that it's, that's a huge issue. Well, yeah, that nobody but it's throughout, a root cause. <laughs> that nobody throughout the go. United States has effectively um, taken on. And I honestly think that we're at the forefront of this, and this is going to be a model throughout the United States and beyond. Uh, for how to, to, to tackle this situation because it was a, a true uh, community partnership. But also what it did was it exposed where we didn't have resources and where uh, we needed to fill those gaps. And, and so some of those are cheap fixes. Some of those are really expensive what fixes. What are some of those gaps? And so uh, we don't have a, a detox center here. We don't mm. have uh, inpatient facilities here. Mm. And so those are some of the more expensive um, mm. Um, things, mm -hmm. but as we as we did, uh, you know, as as this, uh, and I say we, um, I was just a very small piece of the puzzle, um, but um, uh, we worked collectively as as a city and county, um, and and there was no single ownership and everybody collectively working together, and that's very difficult whether that's in government or anything else, to get everybody working together for a common common good, and again that's why I think that we're at the forefront. One of the things we haven't talked about is jail-based treatment. Mm -hmm. If somebody is incarcerated, um, the next, the next uh, um, target is uh, to, to incorporate some sort of jail-based treatment program Absolutely. Um, here locally. Um, and, you know, the, a big thing, too, is, is transition. So, so uh, if, if we're going to um, have in-based uh, treatment programs um, and somebody's in jail, and like you said, 95% of people are going to see the other side someday, and so we get them this treatment, we treat, treat them this lifestyle, and then they go out the door one day, um, and we haven't taken any proactive action to connect them to, re to the right resources outside of jail. They're going to end up in the same cycle that they were in before because they're going to go right back to where right. they were and be involved in the same things. And, and so um, having that uh, transitional piece is, is a yeah. big deal. I mean, really, uh, that time in jail or prison uh, could be should be, I would argue, a time of healing for them. So by the time they've served their their, their, their time, they are restored to community. It's right? part of that process. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. And again, uh, when we talk, when we're talking about mental health, about willingness, we have that willingness factor uh, in that in there as well. And so, um, uh, unfortunately, when you get into the jails, um, the in or the in jail treatment there's not a whole lot of willing participants. And so mm. you have to exclude the willing participants from the unwilling participants in order to make sure that they have that healthy community right. uh, positively reinforcing what they're doing and the direction they're going as opposed to negatively affecting that. Right. You brought in some success stories and uh, would you share uh, one or two of those? Oh, I sure will. Um, and so... John, talking about de-escalation, do you have some specific stories about de-escalation in the field? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it happens uh, frequently. Um, it, pro it happens every day. So we do a year-end report, and, and I try to highlight some of the things that people never hear um, in a small section on that called Beyond a Badge. And so I'll just read for you what was written um, here. 
And on April 17th, officers responded to multiple calls of a child running near traffic and were notified a short time later that the child was autistic. The captain with the police department, who was off duty but near the area, responded to the call. The captain observed the child running towards a residential na neighborhood nearby. Additional officers arrived as the child was observed entering a retention pond. The captain and another officer entered the water with flotation bags and were able to bring the child safely out of the water unharmed. The officers receive training every year uh, on interacting with persons who are aut autistic. The child's mother publicly thanked the officers for their thoughtful approach to the situation and the manner in which they use their training to save her son. Uh, now mm -hmm. the thing that that doesn't say in that story is that um, the officers were very aware that their, any swift action could um, incite that, that child to do something different. And so their approach once they entered the, the water was very carefully done. The officers that arrived on the scene did not have their lights or sirens on because mm -hmm. they also were trained mm -hmm. um, that those things could trigger um, somebody with autism to, to act out. And so, um, again, that was a, a great story where, um, again, that, that child's mother uh, uh, says that we saved her child's life um, by the way that we um, cautiously handled her and, and utilized her training. So. so is that one of the examples where she anticipated something might happen and connected with the police about her son's diagnosis before it happened or it was during that or was during um, again great uh, during the during the call um, it was great. relayed that the child had autism and so the officers as they were arriving knew hey let's shut our lights and sirens off and, and uh, approach slowly and communicate with this child as we're um, working with the yeah, situation that, that's a de-escalation story if I've yes ever heard one. there you go <laughs> oh, yeah, I came up with one absolutely so yeah did I answer all the questions, or was there? There was. I think there was a well, five-part question. Well, very briefly, <laughs> very briefly, how can faith communities contribute to the work that law enforcement does? Well, um, so uh, number one, uh, be a support for for families. Um, but uh, uh, as we talk about, uh, I do a lot of uh, get lo asked a lot of questions on school security and mm. church security, and so. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I've noticed is, or one of the things that I point out in those conversations is, as you increase how welcoming you are, you decrease security. And the more you increase security, the less welcoming you are. And mm -hmm. uh, so if we're looking at a school setting, um, it's okay if we're not real welcoming, right? We can be completely, oh, not completely, but very secure, and we don't really care about being welcoming to to strangers. Um, if it's hard for parents to get in too bad, that's okay, right? Because it's for the safety of our children. But when we look at um, congregations, the faith community is we want to be welcoming to everybody. Mm -hmm. And so once we start increasing security, that welcoming nature um, decreases. And so um, uh, my, uh, I guess what I say to congregations is um, they need to find what that happy medium is for them. And, uh, and so when we talk about what faith communities can do for um, uh, uh, people with mental illness is uh, don't forget that that um, that you want to be welcoming, right? Because churches want to be welcoming, um, and so wherever that happy medium falls between security and being welcoming, um, just because somebody acts different doesn't make them a security risk. Just because somebody right. looks different, um, acts different, doesn't make them a security risk. Um, and, and so make sure that we're still welcoming and treating these people like people, right? Mm -hmm. I like that. Response. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. A couple of questions on, on faith, one that came to mind uh, during the interview here, and I think you were, you were touching on it a bit, is just the idea of justice. I mean, it's a very, you know, theological term, but it's also, you know, baked into your profession, criminal justice. So I'm just curious how your faith has impacted your understanding of justice. Mm -hmm. I'm a um, Christian, first and foremost, and I follow the law and I've taken oath to follow the law. I think that they work hand in hand very well together because um, although we, um, I personally fail at times, um, my goal is always to do right. And, um, and when I do wrong, I ask for forgiveness, right? And, um, and so when we talk about faith um, being 
I'm trying to do the right thing. Um, uh, my favorite chapter is in Romans where it says those things I um, want to do, I do not do, and the things mm. I don't want to do, I do. Well, when it comes to, to justices, sometimes people do things that they don't really want to do, but it doesn't mean there's not consequences because nowhere in that Bible verse says that there's not consequences for bad actions. Right. Um, and so I think justice and faith uh, align together in that, in that regard. Um, again, uh, what I would focus on is um, what is that um, consequence for bad, bad actions. And I think that's um, um, where my faith can um, uh, helps me set aside the black and white of mm. uh, criminal uh, versus non-criminal is that, um, yeah, somebody might have committed a crime, but that doesn't make them a criminal, right? Mm. Um, I spent four years... Um, working in as an undercover officer. During those four years, I lived with drug dealers and drug addicts. I knew their lifestyle inside and out. I know it and understand it from ground zero. Um, one of the things that um, I realized was um, when I was a patrol officer before that, I didn't necessarily look at these people as human beings, as, yeah. as, as non-criminal, or as, as, as criminals who um, just need uh, you know, the, to to find the right direction or the right path. Sure. And uh, and so, um, living with them and um, being around them, knowing that they have families and they have children, although that they're doing wrong, very wrong things, um, uh, doesn't mean that they're not people. It doesn't mean that um, uh, they can't be changed. I think uh, uh, my faith, uh, putting that into the justice system, um, helps me have a better perspective on. Um, uh, can we can we get this guy to be a productive citizen in right. our community, and and if so, how can we do that? Um, and uh, trust me, I've I've spent a lot of times working with uh, different individuals to try to get that, and felt like I've had success. Um, mm -hmm. And then years down the road, there's relapse, and you you seem think, feel like you're back at square one. Um, uh, but again, that's why there's forgiveness. Right. Yeah. Um, but forgiveness doesn't mean no consequence. Yeah. John, our, uh, our key question is always, what does healing mean to you? We're really curious to, to hear <laughs> what, what, what your take is on, on healing. I don't have a dictionary in front of me, but if I were to look up healing, um, it would probably say something along the lines of the process of getting better or getting well um, would be my guess. <laughs> Spiritual he he healing you know, is personal to me. Uh, because I see faith as a journey. Healing is in, you know, I just had a knee surgery, so like I'm getting uh, a healing physically. Um, and, and so I went through a variety of thoughts like that. Um, and so I hate to repeat myself on something I've already said, but um, I, I, I thought, well, they probably want to know what healing means to me as police chief. And, mm -hmm. and to me, that means um, how do we take people that have committed a crime and come up with an individualized plan to make them productive citizens in our community. If my definition of healing is correct, is, is a process of getting well. Mm. Um, somebody that has, has done something wrong and has a consequence, and what's the process of getting that person well um, to where they're being productive in our community? That's great. Well, you've brought with you a, a lot of uh, perspective. Uh, for me, I've learned a lot of things, not only about uh, law enforcement, but perspectives on mental health, mental illness, and I think it's great you were willing to come into Studio E and uh, share your your time and uh, and your uh, your thoughts. Yeah, John. For for better or worse, officers are the for a lot of people the first line of defense in treating or just receiving people who have mental health. You know, issues who are mentally ill. You know, that's the the reality of society. And I'm really glad that you are um, on the front lines serving. And people. I commend you on you know Columbus, as you say, is kind of a model community. Uh, you were sharing a little bit of statistical, but what was the one figure you mentioned? Seventy percent or well, so, so uh, our community, so the, the FBI measures crime nationwide in two categories, uh, one being violent crime and the other being property crime. And so um, our community is, uh, as far as violent crime, and, and violent crime is crimes against a person. That means where somebody's physically getting injured, so you're, 
your robberies and your murders and um, serious batteries will fall in this category. And so our rate is 70% below the na national average. And so um, uh, we're, we're a very safe city. Um, uh, mm -hmm. At the end of the day, you don't have to worry about, you can walk down any street or alley and really not have any fear of mm -hmm. being attacked physically. Um, and, and, and most of our violent crime is, is uh, domestic related or, or if it's not domestic related, it's drug related one way or another. And, um, um, and so yeah, it's just a very safe city. Now, on the flip side, the, the property crime is higher than the national average, um, which goes to, to um, you know, the addiction that's uh, right. in our community. And uh, again, one of the reasons for uh, ASAP um, and so that we can uh, drive that down. And it's a, it's a whole other episode not related to mental health on what we've done and the successes we've had with decreasing that. Um, but I won't, I won't sure. waste your time today. That's part two. Whether you know it or not, I, I, I follow you, you guys and, and, and know you and know what you do in the community. And so it's, a, it's a guys like you um, that, that do a little segment that, that help a lot of people, and you probably don't realize how many people you'll help. It's very thoughtful. Tony, we, we, we have the chief of police following us. <laughs> Wait a minute. This is like my worst psychotic nightmare. Uh, I don't know what to make of that. I, I appreciate that, John. Thank you. We're following you, too. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. Very good. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Yep. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Tell me that was John Rohde. I was impressed by a lot of what John had to say in the realm of uh, faith and law enforcement. Uh, one of the questions that I raised of him went in a different, he took in a different direction than mm. I anticipated. But I, I asked what uh, churches, faith communities could do to help in law enforcement. And he had a great reflection on the, the nature of uh you know, for a school, for instance, they, they have a primary focus on security. Right. And rightly so, with children being the... Um, no doubt about you know, it. ...need for protection. Uh, but then he said, you know, a church has a mission to be hospitable. You know, that's or a faith community. Mm -hmm. We don't want to turn people away. So balancing those two, if you have a church in school, you know, how do you balance those two... Mm -hmm necessary things to accomplish your mission and i i thought he had some good reflections on that yes i think we're in good hands those who are in faith communities and schools i do too tony i've read an article recently about guns in church as a way of protecting the congregation and i have a hard time accepting that as appropriate uh, i i don't think guns belong in churches well you know the the question i think is not so much whether guns are in churches it's it's whether the you know there are trained uh police officers with guns in church mm. uh, if they are uh you know trained security persons i don't have a problem with it um mm. the problem i see with it is churches that you have a you know a macho uh, guy sure. packs a pistol and thinks, you know, he's going to rescue. Defending uh, the flock. Defend the flock. And it's just not a safe situation. But if you have a, you know, a trained police officer, I would say it's perhaps even a wise move. Mm. Um, now, that's probably not possible that every church in town could have one. Right. There are churches that have right? trained people at people with guns in their churches and right there's a place for that i suppose in the body of christ i just don't want to attend a church like that yeah well you make a good point and it's it goes back to what chief brody says you know does a church in its mission to be hospitable mm -hmm. would it would that be violated if there was a gun present depending on how you answer that question you come up with your answer right it's true um, i mean i've never owned a gun i've never held a gun i've never fired a gun so i'm not really equipped to be one to answer the question it's an important topic 
For me, Tony, I liked uh, the the conversation around the chaplaincy program, as well as just mental health of the police force. When I thought of the chaplaincy program, it was mainly about like like he talked about uh, someone has passed away, the chaplain's there to go with the officer to the door of the person, that sort of thing. But uh, the majority of the time. The chaplain is in the vehicle. He's talking to the officer. You know that's the main experience, and, and I think uh, the value that the chaplains bring to talk, officers' mental health and spiritual health is something I'd not really thought of before. It's a key area. I know one of our questioners brought up growing um, number of uh, suicides among. Um, police officers, police officers yeah. and their spouses. It, it's even escalating higher than the rate of the general population. It's an incredible stress to be behind a badge yeah. and to be the woman behind the badge or the yeah, man behind and, the and badge. And Chief Rody said that uh, the divorce rates are pretty high. And that's when he tied in the uh, women behind the badge, you know, spouses uh, behind the badge program. And I wasn't aware of that, but that sounds like a really good way of uh, strengthening those bonds. It's very emotional work, Mm -hmm. I would think. Yeah. Yeah. So very nice. Tony, our show has come to a close. Now is the time to ask for five-star reviews. Please scroll to the bottom of our podcast homepage, click on five stars, then click on write a review. Help us reach more people seeking emotional healing and the hope of faith. Thanks again for your support of Revealing Voices. Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. Hey, John, I had one of your officers come to my house after a stolen bicycle incident from my garage. Did you ever get it it back? Been recovered. That's right. Jeez. One one of them was found. Yes, the other one is not. Well, there you go.